Welcome to God's Messenger Lighthouse Podcast. This is your host, Brother Scott Messenger, bringing you Chapter 4 from God's Smuggler, Brother Andrew, with John and Elizabeth Sherrill. Chapter 4, One Stormy Night. Andrew, Jet G, ran across the little bridge and threw her arms around me. She turned and shouted behind her, Marjorie, go find Papa. Tell him Andy is home. In an instant, the tiny front garden was crowded. Marjorie ran to kiss me before hurrying out back to fetch Papa. Ben was there and his fiancée. They had waited to get married, they told me, until I could be at the wedding. Ari, Jetley's new husband, joined us. My young brother, Cornelius, shook my hand gravely. He couldn't keep his eyes off my cane, and I knew he was wondering just how badly hurt I was. In the midst of hugs and kisses, Papa came shuffling around the house, a bit lame himself now. His brown eyes were moist. Andrew, boy, good to have you home. Papa's voice was as loud as ever. When you feel like it, Andrew, Marjorie said after the first greetings were over, I'll take you out to Mama's grave. I said that I would like to go right then. The graveyard was just 500 yards from our house, but to walk... Even that distance, I had to borrow Papa's bicycle, throw my bad leg over the seat, and push myself along, half riding, half walking. It's really pretty bad then, Marjorie asked. They don't think I'll ever walk right again. The ground had not yet fully settled on Mama's grave. There were fresh flowers in a little red vase stuck into the soil. After a while... Marjorie and I walked home in silence. That night, though after it was dark, I announced that I thought I would try taking a walk. No one offered to go with me. Each person knew what I wanted to do. I got out the bicycle again and hopped and rolled up the street. The cemetery lay in full moonlight, and it was easy to find the grave. I sat down on the ground and said my last words to my mother. I'm back, Mama. It seemed natural talking to her. I did read your Bible, Mama. Not at first, but I did read it. There was a long silence. Mama, what am I going to do now? I can't walk a hundred yards without the pain making me stop. You know I'm no good at smithing. There's a rehabilitation center at the hospital, but what can I learn there? I feel so useless, Mama, and guilty. Guilty for the life I led out there. Answer me, Mama. But no answer came. The cold moonlight flowed over me and the grave and the rest of us there in that cemetery. The dead and the half-dead. After half an hour, I gave up trying to reach into the past. I wheeled myself home. Jitsri was at the kitchen table sewing. We talked about where you could sleep, Andrew, she said, not looking up. Do you think you could make it up the ladder? I looked at the hole in the ceiling above my head. Then I made an assault on that ladder. I climbed one rung at a time, putting my good foot up, hauling the other after it. The pain made perspiration stand out on my forehead, but I turned my head so the others did not see. My old bed was waiting for me. Clean sheets turned down invitingly. 
I lay for a long time staring at the sloping ceiling, and at last, far too close to tears for a twenty-year-old man, I fell asleep, wondering what had happened to my great adventure. The next morning, taking one, taking only, only my cane, I hobbled out to get reacquainted with the village. The people I met were polite, but they also seemed embarrassed. They would look uncomfortably at my uniform, then at my foot. Did you hurt yourself out there in the East Indies or somewhere? They asked. Obviously, the war was unpopular in Holland, as I suppose lost wars always are. It was clear by now that Indonesia would soon be independent, and so it was easiest to pretend that we'd always intended it that way. Returning veterans only made it difficult. For an odd reason, I could not understand the house where I was headed was the Wistras. I found them at home and accepted with pleasure their invitation to a cup of coffee. We sat around the kitchen table while Mr. Wistra asked me about Sukarno and the communists, and at last a more personal question. Did you find that adventure you were looking for, Andy? I looked down at the floor. Not really, I said. Well, he said, we'll just have to keep praying. For adventure? For me? I felt the angry flush climbing up the back of my neck. Sure, I'm a natural for adventure now. When it calls, I'll limp right out to meet it. Immediately, I was ashamed. What had made me answer like that? I left them, feeling I had spoiled a friendship. Another person I'd been eager to see was Kess. I found him at home, upstairs in his room, bent over a large pile of books. After a rather strained greeting, I picked up one of the books and was amazed to find that it was a theological treatise. What's this? I asked. Kess took the book from my hands. I've decided what I'm going to do with my life. You're lucky. What is it? I asked, hardly believing the answer I knew he was going to give me. I want to go into ministry. Pastor Vanderhoop is helping me. Kess made me squirm, and I got out of there just as soon as I politely could. The Veterans Hospital at Doran was an enormous complex of treatment centers, dormitories, and rehabilitation units, but its chief... Uh, quality was boredom. I disliked the exercises. I loathed the trade school, but the thing I hated most was the occupational therapy. We had to make vases out of floppy, sticky clay. I just never could get the hang of it. The trick was to put the lump of clay precisely on the center of the whirling wheel, then keep the wheel turning while your fingers worked the glob into a useful shape. Somehow, I could never find that center. It was so frustrating that on more than one occasion I flung my hunk of clay against the wall. On my first weekend leave, I went to see Thiele. On the bus to Gorkum, I kept telling myself that she could not be as beautiful as I remembered, and then I limped through the door of her father's shop, and she was... Her eyes were blacker, her skin fairer than anyone else's in the world. Even with her father looking on, our handshake 
lingered longer than was necessary. Welcome home, Andrew. Thiele's father came around the counter, wiping fish scales on his apron. He shook my hand fervently. Tell me about tell me all about the Indies. As soon as I could, I took Thiele away from the fish shop. We spent the rest of the afternoon sitting and talking on a large capstan on the wharf. I told her about my homecoming, about Jitley's husband and Ben's upcoming marriage. I told her about the rehabilitation center, how I hated working with the clay, and though I knew she would be disappointed, I told her that my religious life had come to a dead standstill. Thiele was staring out across the harbor, and yet, she said gently, God hasn't come to a standstill. Suddenly she laughed. I think you're like one of your own lumps of clay, Andy. God has a plan for you, and he's trying to get you into the center of it, and you keep dodging and slithering away. She turned her dark eyes on mine. How do you know? Maybe he wants to make you into something wonderful. My eyes fell, and I pretended great interest in the cigarette, but I was crushing against the capstan. Like what, for instance, I said. Thiele looked with distant or distaste at the carpet of cigarette ends that I had spread on the pier around us. Like an ashtray, she said shortly. How much do you smoke, Andy? It had crept up to three packs a day. I don't know, I said. Well, something's making you cough. I don't think it's good for you. You're full of plans for my improvement, aren't you? I hadn't meant to say that. Why do you? I always ruin things. It was just that suddenly I felt so far away from everyone, even Thiele. She didn't know what it was like having to bite the inside of your lip off for fear of the pain in your leg would make you cry, or what it was like to have a woman get up on a public bus so that you could take a seat. I left Thiele that afternoon, knowing I'd said all the things I didn't mean to, and none of the things I did. It was two months before anyone spoke about religion to me again, and then it wasn't Thiele's, but another pretty girl. It was mid-morning on a rather blustery day in September 1949, we were sitting on our beds, reading and writing letters after morning exercises, when the nurse came in to announce a visitor. I paid no attention until I heard a low whistle rise to the lips of twenty boys. I glared, glanced up. Standing in the doorway, embarrassed and yet pleased, was a striking blonde. Not bad, my next bed neighbor, Pierre uh, said, or whispered. I would wouldn't uh, take much. I won't take much of your time. The girl began. I just want to ask you all to join us at our tent meeting tonight. There will be lots of refreshments. What kind? Someone shouted. And the bus will leave here at seven o'clock. And I hope you can all come. The boys burst into wild, exaggerated applause with shouts of encore, encore, as the girl retreated. But when seven o'clock came, every one of us was waiting in the foyer, clean scrubbed, hair stiff and brilliantine. 
Pierre and I were first in line, we were happy, not only because of the night away from the hospital, but also because Pierre had slipped down to the village and come back with our answer to the question of what refreshments would be served. By the time the bus arrived at the tent grounds, the bottom was half empty, or the bottle was half empty. We took seats in the extreme rear of the tent and finished the rest of it. Most of the boys thought our antics were funny. The people holding the revival service did not. Finally, a funny-looking man with a thin face and deep-set eyes, the kind of person I disliked on sight, took the podium and announced that there were two people in the congregation who were bound by powers they couldn't control. And then, closing his eyes, he began a long, impassioned prayer for the health of our immortal souls. We choked back our laughter till our throats ached from the effort. But when at last, in a pious sing-song, he called us, our brethren, over whom foreign spirits have gained influence, we could hold it in no longer. We howled, we yelped, we whooped with laughter. Seeing that further prayer was impossible, the man told the choir to sing. The song they chose was, Let My People Go. Soon, the whole congregation was joining in on the refrain, Let my people go. Again and again, the words swelled up under the big tent. The meeting ended. The vets trooped out to the waiting bus, but still inside my head, the words sang on, Let them go. Let me go. It is foolish, of course, to suggest that a simple song, a song overheard, not even sung, could become a prayer, and that God would honor it. And yet, the very next day, during dreaded occupational class, a strange thing happened. In spite of the fact that I had a king-size hangover, I could do nothing wrong at my wheel. I sat down and slapped a hunk of gray clay on the wheel, then moved it toward the center while my foot worked slowly. A vase rose under my fingers. Incredulous, I threw another glob of clay onto the wheel. Once again, the shape rose effortlessly, matching the form I held in my, hand, in my mind. Later that day, something even more unsettling happened. During afternoon rest period, I was flipping through the magazines provided for us, when all at once I reached for the Bible that I kept on my nightstand as a memento of my mother. I had not read it since I'd been back in Holland, but that afternoon I suddenly started reading, and to my astonishment I understood it. All the passages that had seemed so puzzling when I struggled through them before read now like a fast-paced action yarn. I ran straight through the rest period and had to be called a second time for afternoon tea. I was still devouring the Bible a week later when the hospital told me I could begin going home for long weekends. I read there too, stretched out hour on end on my bed in the attic. Jiltji would bring me soup look at me to see if I was all right, then go back downstairs without saying a word. What was happening to me? And then the church-going began. I, 
who never went to church, started now to attend with such regularity that the whole village noticed it. Not only Sunday mornings, but Sunday evening and Wednesday midweek service as well. In November 1949, I was formally mustered out of the army. With part of my separation pay, I bought myself a sleek new bicycle and learned how to pedal by thrusting with the good leg, coasting with the bad. I still could not take a step without pain, but with wheels beneath me, it no longer mattered so much. Now I started attending church services in neighboring towns as well. On Mondays, I went to a Salvation Army meeting in Alkmaar. On Tuesdays, I pedaled all the way to Amsterdam to a Baptist service. I found a service somewhere every night in the week. At each one, I took careful notes on what the preacher said, and then I spent the following morning looking up passages in the Bible to see if all the things he said were really there. Andrew, Marjorie, came up the ladder, balancing a cup of tea. Andrew, can I be frank with you? I sat up. Of course, Marjorie. It's just that we're worried about the amount of time you're spending up here all alone, always reading the Bible and going to church every night. It isn't natural. What's happened to you, Andy? I smiled. I wish I knew. We can't help worrying, Andy. Papa's, Papa's worried, too. He says... She stopped as though wondering how much to say. Papa says it's shell shock, and with that she backed swiftly down the ladder. I thought about what she said. Was I in danger of becoming a religious fanatic? I had heard of people who lost their minds and went around quoting scriptures at everyone. Was I going to get like that? And still my strange compulsion swept me on, biking from church to church, studying, listening, absorbing. Pierre wrote to me once, asking me to meet him for a good old-fashioned drink fest, but I didn't answer the letter. I intended to, but I found it weeks later stuck in a in the back of a biography of Hudson Taylor. And on the other hand, I began spending a lot of time with Kess and with my old school teacher, Miss Mickle, and with the Wistras, and of course, more than ever with Thiele. Every week I cycled down to Gorkum to talk over with Thiele the things I was reading and hearing. <clears throat> it was too cold now to sit out on the wharf, so we tended the fish shop and between customers talked. At first, Thiele was thrilled about the things that were happening to me, but as the weeks stretched into months and I continued my hot-paced rounds of churches, she began to be alarmed. You don't want to burn yourself out, Andy, she said. Don't you think you ought to pace yourself a bit? Read something different, some different kinds of books? Go to the movies now and then? I couldn't bother. Nothing in the world interested me except the incredible voyage of discovery I, on which I had set out. From time to time also, Thiele asked if I had found a job. This was a more serious problem. Obviously, until I had a job, I couldn't even suggest to Thiele the dream I had had so long for her and me. I set out job hunting in earnest. Before I found one, though, a fragile little event occurred that changed my life far more radically than the bullet 
that had torn through bone and muscle a year before. It was a stormy night in the dead of winter, 1950. I was in bed. The sleet blew across the polders as it can only blow in Holland in mid-January. I pulled the covers higher under my chin, knowing that outside the sleet was driving almost parallel to the ground. There were many voices in the wind. In that wind, I heard Sister Patrice, the monkey will never let go. I heard the singing under the big tent, let my people go. What was it I was hanging on to? What was it that was hanging on to me? What was standing between me and freedom? The rest of the house was asleep. I lay on my back with my hands under my head, staring at the darkened ceiling, and all at once, very quietly, I let go of my ego. With a new note in the wind yelling at me not to be a fool, I turned myself over to God. Lock, stock, and adventure. There wasn't much faith in my prayer. I just said, Lord, if you will show me the way, I will follow you. Amen. It was as simple as that. Next time, Chapter 5, The Step of Yes.